Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for the Practice Journeys podcast. My name is Danielle Hess. I'm a PGY1 pharmacy resident at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and I will be your host today for the ASHP's Practice Journey podcast. With me today are Dr. Garrett Trom, the Director of Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic Rochester, and Dr. Scott Nye, a cardiovascular critical care pharmacist and the PGY1 Residency Program Director at Mayo Clinic Rochester. Thank you for joining us today, Garrett and Scott. Let's get started talking about today's topic, how to quickly evaluate literature. As pharmacists, we are taught to formally review literature, especially through the lens of a journal club but we will be asking these experts the best way to succinctly evaluate literature. There are a lot of scenarios when quick literature evaluation is necessary, whether it be on rounds, answering drug information questions, or preparing for topic discussions. We're going to get into some of the techniques for how this can be done. So that brings us to our first question. What is your general approach when quickly evaluating literature? Daniela, thanks for the invitation here. I'll start here and we'll have Scott weigh in as well. When I was a a pharmacy resident, my residency program director taught a a very simplistic approach to evaluate literature very quickly. So as a pharmacy student and even as a young resident, I didn't really have a grasp on this. And so I remember very vividly, we were in the middle of the ICU and we sat down with a piece of paper and he wrote down a six-step approach to use to evaluate literature quickly. And this is something that I've kept with me in fact, when Scott was my residence years ago, I talked to, to him as well. Um, but it's real, it's simple. It's six questions. The first is, is what is the study question? You know, so looking at both the null and alternative hypotheses, what did the study authors do to answer that study question? So that's really just, you know, kind of the elevator speech. Can you summarize what the authors did? The third question is, what are the inclusion and exclusion criteria for study enrollments? And so that there, you know, certainly making a list and does that list make sense to you? Do they include or exclude the right patient population? The fourth is really focusing on what are the results of the study and something that I really got as a student, I'd always get caught in the weeds with secondary outcomes. And when you're doing this, the results of the study, I, I always focused on the primary outcome. Stats, certainly stats, no matter what level you're at, may or may not be intimidating, but just having some basic appreciation for the statistics that were used in the study is, is very helpful. And if you don't know what the test used was, you know, look it up. It's not a big deal. And then probably most important is that sixth question is, what's the applicability? Can you use that information for the patient right in front of you? So that, that six-step approach has really worked well for me. I've passed that on to students and interns and pharmacy residents. And Scott, maybe you can weigh in on how this uh, impacted you as a resident. Yeah, Garrett, thank you. So similarly to, to Garrett and what I you notice a lot as being a PGO and RPD and having the residents come in is I feel like as students, it's just volume overload trying to take in all of this literature and understand how to apply it. So breaking it down into six simple steps that Garrett outlined has really been something that's been helpful for me. And I've really tried to grow as I've evaluated literature and it does get easier over time. I remember wondering as a resident really does it ever get easier? And, you know, Danielle is one of my current residents as we have all, all three of the lineage of Mayo Clinic here can kind of weigh in as well if she feels it's gotten better throughout the year. But it's something that, as Garrett said, just writing down the questions that you don't know, looking it up later to kind of clarify, you'll continue to grow. 
And one thing I've added to what Garrett has taught me is I really try to put myself in the mindset of the authors and the researchers. And as I've done more research, I think this has really helped me even be better at evaluation because they logically had reasons to ask the questions that they were asking and the approach at which they took. And so trying to think about why they chose to do it that way, and if I would or would not have done it the same way had I been the one executing the study, I think is another way to think about some things of how you would apply it or maybe rationalize why they did it that way and what other future studies you could do too. So I really try to put myself in the mindset of the authors as I'm reviewing that literature and thinking about it to take away the main points because I think there's so many good things you can take away from any study. Great. Thank you, Garrett and Scott. And with that topic in mind, are there particular parts of the article that you focus more on? For example, do you do a quick skim on the abstract or do you kind of go through different parts of the article that are more important to you when evaluating? From my perspective there, honestly, I think it depends on where you're at in your career. If you're a pharmacy student or a resident and you're reading an article for preparation for a rotation, everything's important. But I I found myself, especially early in my career when I was in the ICU, relying a lot on the abstract, you know, to say, is this something that I see in patient population that I take care of? And that really helped drive what articles I was going to focus on. Yeah, I agree. For the most part, when you're crunched for time, the abstract is a good quick overview. There's a, a few studies in mind, and I actually use these as teaching moments sometimes when the abstract actually really doesn't tell the full story and you need to dive in a little bit deeper. And so I will just caution that when you have time, you should always read the full study because that abstract sometimes can mislead you a little bit. But for most of the time, that abstract is very helpful for going quickly through it. I also like to, to do something maybe a little different and jump to the discussion and actually read the discussion first, because I think it sums up the results of the study. It usually sums up some previous evidence to put it in context and also kind of breaks away what the authors felt their, their limitations. And so then after reading the discussion, I'll kind of go back and read it with a new mindset of kind of the author's interpretation of it as I go through the whole thing. So when I get a chance to fully read it, I like to jump actually to the discussion first. You know, amazingly, Danielle, I think Scott just told you to cut corners in residency. So I don't know if I do that. Yeah, thanks for that point, Scott. I waited till the end of the year to at least tell her that one. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So moving through the sections of an article, what sort of general things do you know about the methods of the study in particular? I'll go ahead and take this first and let Garrett chime in with some extra. But when I was getting started with Druglet Review, the methods were very intimidating because I felt like I knew less than was uh, in there and much more about the other sections. And so I would often skip over it. But that is where so much crucial information about how you can apply their inclusion criteria, their exclusion criteria. You really see studies vary across those even the same patient population on how the patients could look different in one study versus another. So I found over time, I've really hounded down into the methods more and really looking at what their definitions are, how they're including people, what their time frame is, just to understand if I can apply it to the patients that are sitting in front of me is usually the biggest part of that. 100% agree with Scott. I would add to that, you know, as you get more experience and start specializing in certain areas of pharmacy practice, I find it very interesting, you know, compare one study's methodology to the next, because oftentimes uh, we take a conglomerate of all the information out there. We try to put it together to make the best recommendations for our patients based on evidence. And so it's a lot easier if there's similar methodology from one study to the next. But if there's not, that's okay. Um, It's just something that you need to be aware of as as a practitioner. Great. And going off of that, 
working through the remainder of the methods, what do you want to know about the population? Yeah, I'll take this one. So, I mean, in general, when you, we go through the six-step approach that I introduced um, earlier, one of those questions really does drill down are what are the inclusion and exclusion criteria and looking at those, those baseline demographics. And if I'm quickly assessing an article, Danielle, I mean, what I really focus in on is, is this a patient that somewhat resembles the one in front of me? Obviously, studies are done in controlled environments, and obviously, enrollment for patients with studies isn't real world, or it doesn't necessarily mimic real world all the time, it's controlled. And so when going through the methods and even looking at those inclusion and exclusion criteria, I always hit the pause button and ask myself, do these make sense? And if I were to redo this study, would I use the exact same inclusion criteria, the same exclusion criteria? I always put myself in there, especially with a quick review of an article to see if it's applicable to my patients. And just to build off of what Garrett said, I, I think a lot of the literature that we read for landmark trials is going to be those controlled, prospective. But as you start to get in the weeds of your specialty, you'll realize that a lot more evidence is going to be retrospective in nature, and it's going to be someone looking at cohorts. And um, oftentimes, I, I look at that too as what was feasible for someone to do, because retrospectively, things get a little bit more challenging and they're trying to control for confounders and how they choose to control for confounding factors is a very important piece to look at too. And so as you get into some of the, the specialty literature, you'll notice that there's a lot of variety in how they try to do that. And it's all trying to control for things that could affect the outcome, which is what your, your goal is, but they just do it in different ways. And those are a lot of things I've had to learn along the way of, of just reading evidence, seeing something I didn't know, and then writing it down to look up later. But I think that when you, you get into the less randomized trials, that becomes a huge part of the method spec section and how they pick people to include. Thank you. And for our last method question, what do you examine the intervention in comparison for? This is one I actually like to go back to when I was doing my PGY2. I had a medical director of the medical ICU kind of give me a tip that I hadn't thought of before, but has really stuck with me. He said that uh, it's really hard to keep up to date on all the literature and look at these interventions. But one thing is it should always make physiologic sense. And so as I'm looking at the intervention and what they're doing and trying to figure out what physiologic purpose this is and how they're assessing the appropriateness of it and does it make sense, that is something I took away from him because it should. And there's only going to be a few times in medicine that it consistently defines what physiologically makes sense and you have to memorize that. But so often we'll see some article come out that has an intervention that almost looks too good to be true or doesn't seem to make sense. And very frequently those get debunked with subsequent studies. And so I think that's something when I think about the interventions or comparisons, really trying to understand, does that intervention make sense? Does that comparison make sense physiologically? Can I rationalize why it's happening that way or how their outcomes went that way? And so that's really trying to see if I can apply it to my exact patients and if it can answer those questions. And it usually makes a little bit more sense in my mind. It makes it easier for me to actually remember and retain that information. Not much to add there, Daniel. I think Scott's you know, points there, are, are they really strike home. Always have your patient in mind when you're reading these results. And then it, unless it's a you know maybe a brand new medication new to the market and there's not a lot out there for comparison for other studies, and that's one thing. But like Scott said, if the results look too good to be true, there's nothing wrong with being skeptical and really digging in a little bit farther to make sure that those results make sense. All right. So when you look at the chosen outcomes, what are some things that you consider? Yeah, for this, 
I think a, a very, very valuable lesson that I learned, especially as I started doing research as a pharmacist, is in the study design um, in those questions. And there's an adage of simple research is the best research. And I think that rings so true. Oftentimes, if you are reading an, an article and you know, you're having a hard time deciphering even what the outcome is, is it a composite and all these things, take a step back and just look at it from a simplistic standpoint. And so the other thing I think about too is does the outcome of that study answer a real world problem? You know, is this something that, again, back to the patient you're treating, is this information going to in any way, shape, or form improve the outcome of that patient potentially? And so simple research is answer a real world problem. And then really, again, applicability. How does it apply to a broad range of patients? Do you need to pull out certain parts of that study and apply it to your patient or can it be be done globally? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with what Garrett said there and just trying to apply it for the appropriateness of that outcome. I think one thing I've changed my approach over time is thinking about the outcome and the power that it takes to achieve that outcome. And this is really where taking the research-minded approach of putting yourself in their shoes will help you because sometimes those surrogate markers are used because it's easier to power for, or they might change their outcome because it's easier to power for versus something that would need 15,000 patients to find. And that's very difficult to do at times, especially if you're a single researcher and you're just getting started. And so that's one lesson I've learned over time is how to power for the trials. And I think putting yourself in their mindset will help you do that. And that can also make you, sometimes I was overly skeptical when I was brand new to clinical research review, because I was thinking everything should be these big randomized control trials and 10,000 patients. And when you start doing your own research, you realize how difficult that is. And so I think that's something that's really changed approach over time. And I try to emphasize to the resident learners I have doing research as well. So sometimes those outcomes are chosen for power reasons versus maybe what they would have wanted had they had the ideal state, but ideal state sometimes isn't feasible. And, and building on that even more, um, you know, you know, Scott said something that really triggered something. When I was in pharmacy school, I felt like every research study that I read for infectious diseases, so antimicrobials, it seemed like every new drug to the market, you know, was getting approved for complicated skin and soft tissue infections. And I'm like, why do all of these antibiotics go for that? And then you realize that it's probably the easiest one to achieve just to get FDA approval. As a young clinician, those aren't bad studies. I mean, sometimes those are done with purpose and you look at, they just want to prove non-inferiority and that's okay if it gets them on the market. But then we all know that, especially in infectious diseases, something gets approved and you can use it for pneumonia or whatever. You have to have that context, I think, and, and understand that. And it's not a critique of the authors or the article. It's just the process. Yeah, I see that even in the critical care and the cardiology realm. You read all these large landmark CARDS trials and you think everything should be that way. So if they don't have 10,000 patients, they weren't doing something right. But if you try to do a cardiology-related trial in your own hospital, it's definitely not going to reach 10,000 patients most of the time. So uh, I've learned my lesson and with high hopes and inability to attain that retrospectively doing review. So one thing, yeah, Garrett has definitely hit on and I think was is something that I had to just learn through practice. Great. And we already touched a little bit on power analysis, but what are some of the important questions you ask yourself when assessing statistical methods? Yeah. Since I kind of hit on that first, I I would say that this is something I felt very uncomfortable with at first. And it was really just through residency and additional training where preceptors through topic discussions challenged me. And as I realized, as I was trying to understand it better, like I wanted to get pushed. And so 
I actually, through both my first year and second year, asked my preceptors at start of rotations to really challenge me on the methods and the statistical analysis and ask us to just talk through them all of the time for every study and why it was used and what they might have done. And that repetition and, you know, re-challenging myself with those multiple topic discussions really helped me understand it better because there's so many statistical analysis out there. I'm still learning today new ways to do statistical analysis. And we're lucky here. We can have a, a statistician that we can reach out to to help us teach too. But the biggest learning I did was talking to preceptors and applying it to patients and through topic discussion and just understanding all of the different ones. And, and there's lots of good review articles out there or ways to do it through many of the journals. Um, they'll have like research basics articles that they come out. A lot of the major landmark journals have that to try to help new researchers. And so it's another good way to help educate yourself. Yeah, I feel like when I was in pharmacy school, the one class that I probably should have paid more attention to was biostats, and it de definitely does come back to bite you. I was a student in, in pharmacy school where I knew that p-value less than 0.05 was statistically significant, and I was happy with that. And as I got into residency, I started realizing, like, there's a lot about stats that I don't know, and it's just inquisitive. You know, I'd ask my preceptors or my program director, physicians, you know, sit down and have them help explain a statistical test that I'd never heard of. Certainly dig into it yourself first to see what you can uncover and, and maybe that's enough. But Scott, even when Scott was a resident, I remember he came forth with a resource that he suggested for the residency class, you know, on statistical interpretation. And so I remember reading that book and, and learning right alongside with the residents as well that year. But when it comes to, to stats overall, I think do your best, especially early in your career. If you challenge yourself to actually start doing the research, so designing a study, I think that's where things started to click for me personally of like, okay, like I'm comfortable doing my own baseline characteristic comparisons. Like that's easy. Multiple logistic regression, I'm not there. And that's where I sit down. But I asked the statistician, like, why do you do that? Or what are considerations? And the, and the time to be having those conversations is early in the process, not later. You know, if you're reviewing a manuscript, it's, it's there right in front of you. But if you're designing a study, there's an opportunity for you to better understand that on that ground zero. Yeah, I would also just like to echo one thing Garrett taught me as a resident early on is you see a lot of things that can be statistically significant, but you also always have to ask yourself, is it clinically significant? And this is where that power analysis also comes in as they might be powering for a surrogate marker or outcome, and it might be statistically significant based on that, but sometimes it may or may not be clinically significant. And so that's a big part that Garrett taught me early on too, is to always ask both of those questions alongside of it. Thank you, Scott and Garrett. That was a great overview of how to quickly pull information out of the methods section. Um, let's move on to the results portion of an article. Given that studies have numerous endpoints and a lot of results, what do you generally look for when examining the results? How do you prioritize your review? Yeah, I'll start with this. Obviously, most of us start with the baseline characteristics, and they just want to make sure that your, your patient populations are well-balanced. Now, if there is a difference, that's okay. Just something that obviously you've got to take that thought and move it forward through the results and the interpretation of those results. When I'm quickly reviewing an article, I laser focus right on the primary outcome. That's right where I go. Baseline characteristics is one and, and, and primary outcomes 1A for me. And so I focus on that and I don't let the secondary outcomes of any type cloud any of my interpretation. If I'm going to evaluate an article quickly, I very focused, maintain the baseline characteristics and primary outcome. You know, another thing too, I think when it comes to the results, composite outcomes 
those are challenging. You know, so if you have composite outcomes in a study, the very first thing that I do is just investigate, is there one thing in that composite outcome, one outcome that's really carrying forward the results? If that's true, then maybe there is an opportunity for that study to be done differently in the future. Composite outcomes, you know, again, commonly used, but be careful. Sometimes the details really tell a lot with those. Yeah, definitely in the quick reviews, go straight to the primary outcome because that's what the authors chose to focus on. So it was definitely what they viewed as probably primarily answering their clinical question that they had. Um, this is where my my cheating and reading the discussion first also helps a little bit as I get to have them put it into context a little bit for me of what they're thinking of just that primary outcome. And it helps me think of questions as I'm reading that I'm going to go back and evaluate. So sometimes I might then look back at a few baseline characteristics in a little bit more depth because I thought maybe they could confound that primary outcome or some of the other outcomes that they are honing in on or putting a lot of focus. I think too, it's kind of interesting when you read the discussion and you see the authors focusing more on secondary outcomes or their non-primaries and it starts making me ask some questions of like, okay, why did they decide to focus on that instead of their primary outcome that they had powered the study for? And so that's where I go back and it stimulates more questions for me uh, more so than than anything else. And that's why when I read it with a second mindset, I feel like I get a little bit more out of it. But I definitely, like Garrett said, focus on the primary. The secondary and composite outcomes usually stimulate future research questions for me or future investigation about if other studies have looked at that. And usually people have, or it's a great opportunity for you to, to do your own research and find that gap in the evidence. All right. So as a follow-up to each of those components, what are some important things to consider in your critique? Yeah, one of the things I kind of already mentioned or Garrett had gave me the idea of earlier is clinical versus uh, statistical significance and always, you know, trying to apply that evidence. And that's really something that can help you out. I think of in, you know, hemodynamics, you might be able to easily achieve a statistical significance in the blood pressure difference if you're looking at just the systolic blood pressure. Um, but clinically, could that little point difference that's statistically different be as meaningful? And, and that's a question you have to ask yourself based on what they found. And I you know, can find it going either ways or debatable often. So that's one thing that I really try to, to emphasize as I'm evaluating it. I think the other thing early on is, is you really have to make sure that you're choosing the correct word association because there can be causation and correlation depending on how they decide to do their study methods. And I hear a lot of learners as we're first going through some of this evidence, picking out the wrong word and maybe sounding like the recommendation could be stronger than it actually is based on the evidence that they're using to support. And so that's where I think a lot of studies you have to think about, they have a correlation or an association rather than a causation. And that's an often catch I, I see with precepting. And so I have to try to think about, and I like to kind of teach early on. Yeah. And just one, one final thought on that. I think the, the clinical versus statistical significance, we, we talk about that all the time. Even when we have grand rounds presentations, we talk about, oh, a change in blood pressure of, you know, two points or three points or whatever is that, you know, clinically significant. And I think I would encourage everyone as a pharmacist that it may or may not be, but to another profession, maybe our provider colleagues, it could be. And so it's really who's reading that article of what, you know, defines clinical significance, even if there is or is not statistical significance. So we work as a team, we practice as a team, and I feel like sometimes we don't interpret literature as a team or we don't discuss it as a team. But I think it's an important aspect that I learned many years later of this means something to me, but it could mean something completely different to somebody else. Thank you. 
And I know it was mentioned that secondary outcomes may not be the complete focus of quickly evaluating literature, but in terms of secondary outcomes, what do you typically look for? Yeah, I alluded to this earlier. If your goal is to evaluate articles quickly, I would cover up that section of the manuscript and not even look at it, to be honest, at least initially. I just don't put a lot of weight in there. Scott nicely stated that certainly the authors are going to elaborate on that in the discussion. Secondary outcomes for me get me thinking as the researcher of like, okay, if I did this study or, you know, something in the secondary outcomes that just didn't make sense, is that an opportunity to do a separate study and to answer a different question? And so I'm not going to discount uh, secondary outcomes and say they're not important. They are. But again, I don't put too much weight on them. Yeah, I would echo that and kind of what the comment Garrett made earlier about composite outcomes and even elaborate that to a subgroup analysis. I think as we get large evidence and we like to dig in when you're doing all of these subgroup analysis, it's really to try to generate some sort of new clinical question or hypothesis that could be evaluated later. And I think if you take that mindset as you're reviewing it, it'll keep you from overstating what maybe those outcomes are, because that's probably the biggest pitfall I see new people as they're evaluating the literature is they put in a little too much emphasis in some of those subgroups. There can be some very large studies where subgroups can be meaningful, but I think more often than not, I'm first hesitant before I'm accepting of a lot of those and just thinking of it as a hypothesis generating question as a, just a general rule. And so I'm usually thinking about why they decided to do that subgroup, how they're going to evaluate it. If it was different, could that be something that we look at in a different methodology to stimulate a new, a new clinical question? And that's a great way as you're trying to learn how to ask a good clinical question as you're reading evidence. Great way to find those gaps in the literature and kind of stimulate your own research. So I really try to look at that too. And, and it's probably one of the more beneficial as you're just thinking about what you want to do your own research in. That's a great segue into our next question. Um, focus more on subgroup analysis. So what do you consider the most important aspects of a subgroup analysis to consider when quickly evaluating a study? You know, I don't know that I have too much more to add on, but usually trying to think if it's a confounder or a contributor to the outcome that I'm most interested in as I'm trying to apply it to the patient. So for example, if there could be a, a past medical history disease state that could contribute to my cardiovascular disease or my critical care disease. And as they ask that question in the subgroup, then I'm interested to see if there's a different study that's doing that as a primary outcome or trying to power their study to evaluate that outcome or that contributing factor, I should say. I think just keeping the, the secondary outcomes on your radar um, as a clinician. So if, if there is, you know, subgroup analyses and patient population was divided based off of race and ethnicity or obesity or end organ function, for example, and they found a difference, you know, in those groups, that's all good and great. It wasn't the primary outcome, but how do you keep that in the back of your mind? And so when you're on rounds or you're talking with a provider or a patient, be like, they know that in that study, that particular population did a little bit better or maybe a little bit worse, but at the same time, I don't hang my hat on that because again, it wasn't the primary outcome. Thank you. And that brings us to our last question for today. Once you've taken all of the methods and results, what are some tips for wrapping up your review? Yeah, I think it gets back to the sixth step and the six step approach that we talked about is just applicability. Again, how do you distill everything that you just read in a manuscript and in that research article and apply it to your patient population, knowing that no study is going to be designed to answer individual patient questions? And so I think at that point, my approach is you take the information that you have, you know, in the scientific literature, 
and apply that to your patients, but also realize that you're applying results from a large populations to an individual. And so I think for me, I think obviously identifying limitations in a study, that's fine. Every study has them. Every study has limitations and that's okay. As a young clinician, I used to just critique that. I would sit there all day long and say, oh, this was industry sponsored. Therefore, it's bias. And at the end of the day, you realize that research doesn't get done without industry. And, and there's a lot of good results out there. And then also, too, I think taking into context and having those team-based discussions. I've made recommendations on rounds before, and our physician counterparts say, oh, well, this is how I interpreted those results. And you wouldn't think that there'd be multiple ways to get the different answers, but it really depends on what your, your context is and how you're viewing the patient. Yeah, I think just to, to add to that, one thing that I would do is I was trying to learn and I was doing these for topic discussions and it's kind of become second habit for me now is after I'm done reading everything and trying to pull out, uh, you know, as Garrett said, what my interpretation of is versus what I'm going to discuss with people the next day. And I always try to discuss with, with people. And that's where I think the fun relationships that you build in practice are, are great because you actually get to hear what their interpretations and context is. But as I was early on, I would take a moment and I would stop at the end of the article and rather than pick up the next one immediately and start reading, I would try to write down what I viewed as the most important contextual parts of it and how I would apply to it. And it was really trying to put all of the information I just consumed down together into one uh, distilled piece of takeaway points. And I would write that on the top of my, my papers when I was learning and getting ready for topic discussions. And it just helped bring me back into the mindset of that article when I was re-preparing immediately before topic discussions. And so I could refresh myself on what I had read and what my takeaway points are and why. Because otherwise, I just have these highlighted papers that I just can't even find the information I'm looking for when it comes to topic discussions. And now it's just become second nature that after I'm done reading, it's really just trying to conceptualize that whole piece of evidence together and help ask more questions and might go back and relook at more pieces. And so I think that's a, a good habit to get in as you're trying to put the literature away and be able to apply it because it all really does come back to the patients that you're taking care of or the future research that you want to do. Danielle, I kind of had a, a little bit of a twist at the end here. I was curious, now through three quarters of a PGY1 residency, what have you viewed as the most important takeaways or how have you changed your style of lit review? <laughs> well, thank you for a question for me. My approach has definitely changed and progressed over residency, especially going through different sessions of evaluating an article that Scott has given us the opportunity to look at or on our pharmacy grand rounds. We have to evaluate a lot of different literature. And I do like to kind of take a step back and look at what the big picture of the article is trying to get at and kind of just wrapping my mind around that before going into the little details. I do like to focus on the discussion section a lot, um, like Scott was saying too. And that was a nice tip from him early on as well, because it does let you know what the authors are thinking, what they were really trying to prove in their research. and the gaps in research that are still available for future studies. I think the six steps that you mentioned, Garrett, too, are also very helpful. And I've used a lot of those different processes to go through literature as I've gone through residency. And I look forward to continuing and diving even deeper into literature as I go into my PGY2 year this next year. So with that, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Garrett and Scott for joining us today to discuss methods for quickly evaluating literature. The Clinical Practice Advisory Group created a tips and tricks resource that can be used as a reference for quick literature evaluation. 
which is accessible on the ASHP New Practitioner Forum website under the Journal Club section. Join us here every Thursday where we will be talking with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.